From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Megan Mayhew Bergman, and I'll be reading to you today uh, from a story called Phoenix that's from the paperback version of my book, a collection of short stories called Birds of a Lesser Paradise. This is Phoenix. I remember, most vividly, the tea my mother used to dye her auburn hair, the soup of crushed marigolds, rose hips, and paprika. It was crimson, like the blood that drips from Pete and Willow's goats this morning, young weathers with slit throats strung up on a clothesline. I'm busy enough to look away, forget their names. I walk head down to the big house. I have barn chores to do, and if I keep doing them, I will get somewhere, which is better than the basement of my mother's house. For years, I smoked cigarettes and self-educated, hiding behind a wall of art history books in her cabin until I felt the urge to be out in the world, have my fingers in the dirt, do something real. My father had always liked Turnbridge, Vermont, for its revolutionary war history. He told me stories about British raids on frontier settlements, cattle killed, crops burned, sons marched off toward Canada, humbling winters. When I saw Pete's ad, Wanted, Cheesemaker, Organic Farm in Turnbridge, No Experience Required, I called immediately. I thought I might feel closer to my father living someplace within the reaches of his imagination. I also saw a way into my adult life, pictured like-minded people with whom I could share milking duty, meals, and a tractor. Together we would make renowned cheese and build a farm we could be proud of, energy-efficient, fertile, pure, which is how I came to live and work at a homestead formerly known as Smart Ass Farm. Pete and Willow bought the property two years ago. The first thing they did was sell the donkeys and rename the place Green Dream Farm. The homestead consists of a two-story farmhouse from the 1800s with empty pastures out front, broken fencing, nascent vegetable plots, and a ramshackle barn with an uneven slate roof, outside of which crossbred goats climb stone fences and nibble fields of alfalfa. Pete's on edge because the septic system needs replacing and the blueberry bushes have twig blight. Willow, Pete yells, because he's always yelling at her. I'm not sure she hears him anymore, he yells so much. His anger has become background noise. I'm filling up my water bottle at the kitchen sink when he walks in and grabs me by the elbow. Phoenix, Pete says, do you know where Willow is? His fingers are rough with dirt, and I pretend to need something in the cabinet so I can shake them loose. She's doing the garlic, I say. Pete's the boss. Willow is just as much the boss as he is, theoretically, because they both own the farm, but some people are just natural bosses. Even though buying the farm was Willow's idea, if Pete didn't make decisions, nothing would happen. He's an alpha male hiding in a Grateful Dead t-shirt. I live in their guest room, so I know all about how much of a boss he can be, how to chop carrots, how to fold fitted sheets, the ways he prefers to make love. Not that they do much of that anymore. From what I can tell, Pete and Willow disgust each other. They moved to Vermont and bought a farm to work on their relationship. Lesson learned, working a cold farm with a leaky old house and a flame-haired cheesemaker living in your guest room will not fix your relationship. It will, I think, ruin it in record speed. I expect one of them to leave any day. Pete came to the farm because he's an apocalypse guy, an ex-banker from Boston he hates the world and is waiting for it to end. 
Willow came to the farm because she loves the world and wants to be closer to it. I am, philosophically, somewhere in between. I didn't tell her to do the garlic, Pete says. I'll let her know you're looking for her, I say. I screw on the top to my water bottle and scoot toward the door. Your cash, Pete says, is in your kitchen cubby. Thanks, I say. Tell Willow I need her, Pete says. He looks like Tom Selleck as Magnum P.I., but without the sexy twinkle in his eyes. Pete is tall and dark, but he has no twinkle. I nod and head outside. Regarding the cash, here's the thing. I don't exist. I'm no one. I'm off the record, unofficial. I have no bank account, no social security number. They have to pay me off the books. Pete and Willow think I want to be off the record, probably figure I'm a reformed criminal or in witness protection, a low-profile damsel in distress. But really, I don't exist, not legally. Mom and Dad never formally certified my birth, and growing up homeschooled in the northeast kingdom of Vermont, there was no one to challenge them. They wanted me to be free of the system. Anonymity is a gift, Dad said. I have reasons to believe he meant it, and that even my mother didn't know his given name. When I find Willow, she's standing in her mother's overalls over the garlic bed. The denim is threadbare and patched. Willow likes clothes with history, fabric that looks loved. This is an experiment, she says, spring garlic. It will be petite. Pete is looking for you, I say. I refrigerated the clothes first, she explains. Garlic needs a cold treatment. Willow, I say. Pete's in the house and he says he needs you. She looks up at me. She's chewing her bottom lip, and I can see that I haven't fully interrupted her concentration. Six to eight inches apart, she says. What's six times fifty? I should know. Three hundred, I say. Did you hear what I said about Pete needing you? What does he need? Willow asks. He didn't say. Here's the thing about Willow. She's inherently annoying. She can't help it. She's sensitive, forgetful, and says exactly what's on her mind. Unfortunately, the things on her mind frequently include her mother and celebrity pregnancies. Willow takes her hairband out, and her long brown hair falls to her hip bones. She runs her fingers through it. Willow compulsively pulls out her hair. It's everywhere in the house. The sink, sheets, food, kitchen floor. I secretly hate her for this. But I don't hate her all the time. A lot of the time I feel sorry for her. She loves Pete, but he doesn't love her back and that's obvious to everyone, even Willow. Pete is trying to make things work despite the fact that being in the same room with Willow drives him crazy. She thinks she can change his heart. They bought Smartass Farm when the fields were fallow and a pack of wild dogs was terrorizing local pastures. They took on me and a part-time field hand named Buzz. Buzz comes from Texas. He has an earring, knows a lot about pruning apple trees and planting potatoes, likes to race his dead father's 69 Dodge. He's also hopelessly in love with Willow. His eyes fire up when she's around, and there's nothing he wouldn't do for her, mow a path in the hayfield for her evening walks, trim a hundred hooves, whitewash the greenhouse, pot the herbs when the leaves go gray in the November cold. I'm going to get to the cheese barn, I say. Willow nods at me and kneels down next to the garlic. I hate thinking about how Pete will react and at how I'm going to have to assure him that I told her he was looking for her. Pete's big on accountability. Every week he rides his four-wheeler around the farm and looks at everyone's work, scribbles notes. 
He's never satisfied. But I haven't met many people who are. I don't remember Shiktulik, a half-town a hundred miles east of Nome, where my parents spent the short Alaskan summer so that my mother could give birth in a shed. But I've seen pictures of the place, before the seasons got confused, before the shoreline was covered in concrete riprap. In winter, the ocean becomes one with the ice, and it all gets covered in snow and pushed into the streets. That's the kind of place I was born. A nowhere place. I was raised in Bloomfield, another nowhere town in the Northeast Kingdom in Vermont. The Kingdom. Sounds romantic, doesn't it? It wasn't. I'm not saying it wasn't beautiful. It was. But it was other things, too. In these nowhere places are my memories of my father, who left when I was twelve. Mom won't say where he is, only that he might be dead. He must have left the house on foot, or perhaps on his bicycle, because I still drive his 78 Ford pickup. My parents met in a psychiatric hospital. Mom was an inpatient and already married. She had country club parents in the body of a dancer. Her dashing young husband had signed her away on account of a journal entry she wrote about suicide, which, she always notes, he read without asking. My father, as she tells it, was hard to look away from. An outpatient, he had an easy smile and a persuasive way of speaking. He brought her books, cigarettes, and molasses cookies. And on a cold night, he waited outside her window, and they made a break for Alaska. My parents, I learned at an early age, are not the kind of people the world cheers on. We were drawn to places of freedom, Mom said, when she talked about their early life, usually at the kitchen table after dinner. I loved them both then. I loved to watch the inner mania take the shape of words. Mom had fashioned a messy bun on top of her head with two pencils and wore a crocheted poncho over jeans. Dad wore jeans and a white T-shirt, a cigarette behind one ear. It was the early 80s, and a short-lived mustache consumed his upper lip. First, we took the bus to Nynamo, where we dressed like pirates and raced bathtub boats, Mom said. We looked for spirit bears on Princess Royal Island, where we were almost eaten, Dad said, leaning forward in his chair. He never stopped moving. There was a bright light inside him that came out through his mouth and eyes. We were driving to Alaska, Mom said, slowly. The van, we called her Galignole, would only go fifty-five miles an hour pedal to the floor. The globe light that hung over our kitchen was filled with bugs. You could look up and see the silhouettes of their still, black bodies. Mom and Dad were caught in the throes of the story, the way they were often caught in the throes of music and arguments. We were, essentially, running away from your folks, Dad added, turning to Mom. Your father was on to us, your husband, too. When we realized we were pregnant with you, Mom said, we went to the most remote place we could find and settled down for a while. We didn't have a map and sort of ambled into Shiktulik. I needed to rest. The way she said it made me feel like I was a storm they could see on the horizon, something to prepare for. I concentrated on the details of the story in an attempt to put some structure to the family myth. Even as a child, I knew I was hearing a conversation I'd revisit in middle age, the moment smacked of nostalgia before it was even finished. In Chictulik, Dad said, a willow ptarmigan had nested near the shed and was calling like a jaw harp while your mother was in labor. Your head began to breach. I was hyperventilating, Mom interjected. I was ecstatic with pain. Ecstatic, Dad said. It was a beautiful thing to hear them tell stories together, and they had many. They got louder, 
as the stories progressed. It was always one story, two voices. The ptarmigan was driving me mad, Dad said, his green eyes blazing, calling and calling. Bow, bow, bow. Your mother was gripping the mattress and crying for me to make it stop. The pain, Mom said. I was talking about the pain. Of course I had to make it stop. I'd do anything for your mother, Dad said. So I got out the Remy Ultramag we kept on hand for bears, and I shot that bird to dust. I bit my tongue and wanted to cry. We turned around soon after, Mom said, and headed back to New England. You could breastfeed and drive at the same time, Dad said. You just looked out the windows, Mom said. The cheese barn is cold in the morning and freezes my hands. Jesus, who always comes into the barn when I'm there, greets me. She has shredded ears. That's how you can tell her apart from the other goats. I don't tell anyone I call her Jesus because it's just the thing that Willow would have to think about. I don't know, I can imagine her saying. It doesn't offend me, but will it offend others? Jesus sucks on my finger. I love Jesus. And if I ever leave the farm, I'm going to beg Pete to let me have her. She's cow-like, white with black spots, and expects attention in the way of a kitten. I've given other goats benign names like gingersnap and chamomile, things you can say in front of Willow that will make her scrunch up her nose and say, Aw, leave me alone now, Jesus, I say. I have work to do. I milk half of the goats in the morning and half at night. They each give me about a gallon of milk a day, which is a pound of cheese when it's all said and done. We have twenty-five goats on the farm, but not all of them give milk. There are a handful of retired stud goats and some old girls we don't breed anymore. Every season, complaining about mouths to feed, Pete puts a bullet from his thirty-eight in the back of some skulls, mostly young boys and old girls. I hate that part. If I had a place of my own, and one day I will, I'd take them. Part farm part sanctuary. We have a modern milking setup with stanchions. The gist of the operation is this. Four goats climb onto the platform at a time. Their milk goes into tubes that lead to a pasteurization machine, a big chrome vat, and bags of the white stuff hang over gallon buckets, which allows for separation of the curds and whey. I mix in a little rennet and poof cheese, mostly chev, a little Havarti. Today I set out my molds, lay a sheet of cellophane wrap over each, and then began the process of laying out what will become the top of the artisan cheese. Herbs de Provence makes people feel fancy. The room smells dirty, but it's not. I Clorox it nightly, and finally convince Pete to remove the old Jersey cowtails pinned to the beams of the milking station, a nod to what was. I set out lavender hand soap and keep things hospital clean. Jesus butts the back of my knees. You're going to make my work look sloppy, I say. Every time I touch you, I gotta go wash my hands. Phoenix, Pete says, sticking his head into the barn. Yeah, I say. Did you tell Willow? I did, I say. I can't find her. I'm sure she's around, I say. Hey, he says, can you make some of that goat milk fudge? We have a group from Pennsylvania coming in on Sunday, and I think they'll go for chocolate. We need to make some big sales. No problem, I say. Just don't work overtime, he says. I won't, I say though this is not true. I always work overtime, but I rarely charge them for it because they're so stressed about money. I take pride in my work. I want things to be clean and beautiful, and if that means staying up until midnight, making fudge and wrapping it just the right way, that's what I'll do. After setting the cheese, I deadhead the begonias and the planters and wipe down the edges of the dirty clawfoot bathtubs we keep outside for the goats to drink from. 
It's a charming operation, despite Willow and Pete stomping around, avoiding each other. I wrapped white Christmas lights around the bittersweet that climbs the fence closest to the barn and painted the door light purple. I like living here, but it gets lonely. Sometimes I go into town for a beer, but everyone worth looking at is married. They've come here to relish their relationship in quiet. Or drown it. I came here two years ago when I had nothing. No money, no career, no boyfriend. Only thirty-odd books on Egon Sheila, Expressionism, and Dada that I didn't fully understand. I was interested in radical distortions, the idea that people could evoke mood with shapes and color. I spent all my money on canvases and oils, but the work I made did not satisfy me. No meaning had been transmitted. It was lost in primal jags of paint. I felt hopeless, in need of hands-on work I could feel good about. Those days my mom claimed I was looking for a life. I hope that I've found one. But I'm not sure. I think about what it would be like to sleep with someone again. I think about sleeping with everyone, even people I don't like, even Willow and Pete. And when I say I think about it, I mean I imagine it by accident and have no intention of doing it. I think imagining sex is a way to process what you know about a person, their attributes and hang-ups, their mastery and abuse of the English language. Tonight I work three hours late, three hours which I will not mention to Pete and which he will not acknowledge, even if he sees the lights on in the cheese barn. Who wants to fight with Pete about money? Besides, I need the practice for running my own farm some day. I don't have a college degree or seed money. We eat dinner together, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Saturdays are supposed to be date night for Pete and Willow, another idea Willow came up with for saving their marriage, but I've yet to see them go out on a date. Tonight is Friday, which means Willow will make a stir-fry. Her stir-fries are good enough but always bland, and I have to dump a tablespoon of chili garlic sauce on the vegetables to enjoy them. Your food would make me cry, Willow said once. Everything makes you cry, Pete said. I come into the kitchen just as Willow is setting the table, and I wash up. She lays plates down with such love and grace, as if feeding someone is an important and intimate gesture. And I think it is. Thanks for cooking, I say. The broccoli looks great. I didn't burn the rice this time, Willow says, genuinely proud of herself. Willow always burns the rice. I think it's because she's insecure. A confident person trusts their ability to cut the heat at the right time. Willow needs to see it stuck to the bottom of the pan before she knows it's done. The farmhouse kitchen has big pine plank floors of varying widths, scratched by dogs that no longer live here. The countertops are slate, and the sink must weigh two hundred pounds. Willow strung Nepalese prayer flags over the dinner table, fashioned curtains out of feed bags, and taped 1960s postcards to the fridge. In winter, it's the room we live in when we're out of bed, because the wood stove and oven keep it warm. In summer, it reeks of spoiled vegetables, hot compost. We drink from mason jars and eat from mismatched china. The windowsills are cracked and full of dead wasps. I can smell Willow's perfume as she sits down next to me. The scent is, I believe, part of her plan to become irresistible to Pete. She smiles, and I smile back. Pete has a newspaper on the table and looks at the sports section. The tension between them is a vacuum, and I always feel in danger of being sucked in. Mom called, Willow says. Pete doesn't look up, so by default, she's talking to me. What did she say? I ask. I get up to retrieve my jar of chili garlic sauce. The fridge is old, pastel blue, and has rounded edges. Willow bought it secondhand because she liked the design. 
The hum and poor cooling quality drive Pete nuts. Willow and I have bonded over what she calls our mother issues. But if we ever get into a pissing match about crazy mothers, I'll win. So far, I haven't mentioned Mom's summer nudist experiments, her uncanny knowledge of healing crystals, or the fact that she only ate kimchi, nuts, and instant miso for a year after my father left, washing her macrobiotics down with jugs of Chardonnay. She spent two years wearing only teal, and her bookshelf is one part New Age and another part Harlequin. Mom's worried about liabilities, Willow says. What if our cheese goes bad and people get sick? What if the dogs come back and bite someone's leg? What if the llama kicks an employee or someone gets hurt on the farm? I'm not going to sue you, I say. I know you won't, Willow says, and Buzz won't. And how do you know that, Pete asks, laughing. I just know, Willow says. And we don't have llamas, I said. We will, Willow says. That's part of the long-term plan. I'm going to finish up the chores, Pete says, standing up from the table. He opens a Budweiser. Are we protected against that sort of thing? Willow asks. What sort of thing? Pete says, taking a long gulp of beer. The world? Bad luck? No, we're not. What if Buzz got hurt? Willow says. Would we have to pay workers' comp? Who pays workers' comp? I didn't know that we had to worry about those things. We don't, Pete says, letting the back door slam behind him. I take my plate to the sink because I can't stand the thought of Willow's face. I wash what I can get my hands on without going back to the table, then head upstairs. Anything more might be intrusive, I tell myself, though I know Willow wants to talk. We've had many nights like these, especially in winter, when the lack of light leaves us melancholic, restless. When the mood in the house becomes low, there is at first the urge to retreat, and we go running to our books and projects. But as the night wears on, Willow can't bear to be alone. She's always looking for the friend. I don't know how to be. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. 